Amen. You may be seated. Well, we have someone here with us this morning that I know many of you have loved for many years, and we're so happy to have her being a guest this morning. She pops in and out, but today we kind of want to acknowledge uh, what she means to our church. Miss Carol, come on up here. Mike, you need to come with her. You too. Come on. Both of Mike, come on up here. Okay. <laughs> we're sorry to put you on the spot. Sorry about that. <laughs> This is Miss Carol. That's how we know her as Miss Carol. And, of course, Larry and Carol served our church faithfully for almost 18 years here in the church. I had the privilege to work with them about half of those years, and it was a great time. Uh, I, I know they had to put up with a lot for me being this young guy trying to really get things going. And, and believe me, I'm getting paid back. I'm, I'm having to hold the young guys down. So, But anyway, but we're so grateful they're here with us this morning. And Mike's here with us. Mike served as a student pastor here at the church uh, before myself. And so uh, we just kind of traded jobs a lot. So, But anyway, but they're here with us this morning. Tim, uh, the other son is here with us. Tim, good to have you. Deanna, De uh, Mike married a Cleveland County girl. And uh, Deanna's here also. Yeah, Willard and Delores' daughter. And uh, she's here with us also. It's so great to have Sorry, we're redoing our sound system this week. But anyway, the thing that we uh, really love is the fact that they have served so faithfully. And so we just kind of want to uh, honor you with a, go ahead and hand her the basket. So we won't let make you hold it. We're going to let Mike hold it. Yeah, we just. Y'all know I love flowers. Yes, yes. And they're still coming up over there at the Parsons, by the way. So anyway, <laughs> but uh, we do appreciate them. But I have a card here, and, and this is what the card and I think it's very fitting that we honor them in this way because of this. Thank you from a grateful church family. The impacting ministry we have today in our community and our ability to reach a desperate world in need of Christ is continuing to be built on the foundation your family laid during the 80s and 90s. Your servant leadership, obedience, and faithfulness are still a model for us as we follow Jesus. Please know that you are loved and appreciated your family at Pleasant City Church. We appreciate you so much. Yeah. 40, 41 years ago, September 25th. 41 years ago, September 25th. Yeah. She was just reminded I'm here 41 years ago. Man, that's a long time ago. You were a young person. Well, I, was, I, was, I was about 41. Were you really? Great day. Anyway. Uh, I have been here. I was here three years ago visiting with Theresa Aker. And I see all that God's doing. Mm. And this is not of the flesh, believe me. Mm. It is a God thing. Amen. And I am so, so happy that you are following. And this is my heart every Amen. day. And every time I think about you. I just, I'm bubbling over with joy ah, because of the wonderful time we hear. Amen. Amen. And thank you for right. allowing me to be here today. Oh, well, thank you for coming. We appreciate you, Mike. You too. Glad you made the trip. Mike is actually a pastor at Oak Point Church, not Baptist Oak Point Church. Y'all Baptist Church. Okay. They're in Pelzer, South Carolina. So he's staying busy in the ministry. We appreciate you guys. Thank y'all so much. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Tina, for coming up. You're so blessed to have me. So, anyway. 
If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Yeah, I got to get that in there. But anyway, Acts chapter 9. Jonathan asked me, he says, is this thing supposed to be this high? I said, yes. When you get my age, it'll be this high. But anyway, <laughs> we're so glad uh, that you're able to be here this morning. We are looking at Experiencing God Week 9. And many of you began this journey with us uh, around mid-September. We will continue this journey until the end of November. What's really cool about Miss Carol being here today is when I first took experience in God, they were serving as pastor and wife here in the church 25 years ago. And uh, it was a blessing then, and it is a blessing now as we go through this as a church family. So today, what we're going to be looking at is we're going from crisis of belief to adjustments by way of obedience. So look at the introduction there on your outline. These thoughts are taken from experience in God, right there in your workbook. Obedience is the outward expression of our love for God. When we obey God, he will accomplish through us what he has purposed to do. Now, when God sees that we are faithful and obedient with a little, he will entrust us with more. And many of you are living examples of what God has done in your life and how you've walked that faith walk and how you've gone into those moments of crisis of belief. For some of you, I've had a chance to walk with those things through you. Miss Carol did when she was here. And there's those things which we know when it comes to that crisis of belief that the next step, as we've learned, are the adjustments. But those adjustments come by way of our obedience to our God. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at Acts chapter 9. And by the way, if you know your word, if you know the Bible, you know that this is Paul's conversion. And what I want to do is show you, I think, the most beautiful vision of what we have when it comes to a crisis of belief leading to adjustments by way of obedience. There's no better place in the Bible than the Apostle Paul and his conversion story. Now, let me say this. Every one of our conversion stories, if you really think about it, came by way of a crisis of belief. We had to come to terms with something in our life, and that brought about repentance. That was the adjustments. The repentance was the adjustments, and it came by way of obedience that soon followed after that. But let's face it. As we have our faith journey, as we continue to walk with Christ, we also come to other crises of belief as we make our way through life. How many of you can testify to that? We do. It's just part of it. It's the part of the world in which we live. And so here in the book of Acts, we have three accounts of Paul's conversion. In chapter 9, we have Luke's account of reporting the event. And then in Luke Excuse me, and then in Acts 22 and 26, we have a record literally of Paul giving his testimony. And in his testimony, Paul talks about three things. Three things that it takes us when we give our testimony, this should contain, be contained in our testimony. First of all, he talks about his life before Christ. And literally for Paul, it was his old perspective of God. The perspective that he had of Jehovah God, and he had a perspective of him. But then secondly, he talks about how he came to Christ, and, and for him, it was definitely a crisis of belief. And then he talks about his life since Christ. He talks about some of the adjustments. He talks about the obedience in which he followed the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, what we learn from Paul is the same thing we must encounter in our own lives. And it really looks like this. Radical adjustments are necessary when we come to him through the crisis of belief, through the uh, adjustments, into obedience. 
It takes radical adjustments many times when it comes to God doing a God-sized work in our life. So, we know from Scripture that Paul was headstrong. How many of you picked up that in Scripture? He was headstrong. He was strong-willed. He had great knowledge and great ambitions. And so, that's the first thing I want to talk about this morning. Paul's former ambitions. The first thing we note here about Paul's life is his erroneous beliefs. He had some beliefs that were not quite right. There was a segment of the Jewish population and teachers back in that day that literally taught that the Messiah could be ushered in through the, uh, through the Jewish people. Paul, who was a Pharisee, he was a part, many people believe he was a part of that set that basically said, if the nation of Israel would get right, it would usher in the coming Messiah. And, and so Paul had that in his mind. And so when you think about his ambition, his ambition was that he wanted to see Jehovah God Okay, come to this world in such a way that it would radically change them. In his mind, like many Jews, they thought it would have been a military leader. And so he obviously overlooked Jesus. He obviously saw Jesus and the Christian movement as a threat to the very thing that he wanted more than anything, and that's to see the Messiah come. And so we began to see that he had a, an erroneous belief about what the Messiah would be about. Secondly, it led to Paul's destructive zeal. Now, I, I think if you've studied Paul, you, you would come to the same conclusion. But I believe there's three words that describe him. He was persistent, he was intense, and he was fierce. How many of you would say that, that's a good description of Paul? And it is. It's not just that we see this when he encounters the Jews themselves. We see him with this same zeal when he's talking to the people that are partnering with him. There's times where he was even hard on those who, who ministered with him because he didn't feel like they had the zeal that he also had. So what does that zeal look like? Well, before he was saved, before he encountered the resurrected Jesus, look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then Saul, which by the way was his Hebrew name, uh, he's also known as the Apostle Paul, that's his Latin name, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked letters from him to go to the synagogues of Damascus, so that he, if he found any who were of the way, as followers of Jesus, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to think about this. Paul, back then Saul, was not sent on an assignment to do this. What does the record say? The record says that he went and sought the ability to do that, to have the authority of the high priest. Now think about that. He, he wasn't put upon him. He sought what he was about to do. Okay? So Paul's zeal, if you think about it, made him a dangerous man to Christians. He, he not only arrested Christians, he also, we see, participated in their execution. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. There, the first martyr. Paul was standing there and observed it. He tells us that later in the book of Acts. Now we go from Paul's zealous ambitions to him the, and the confidence he had in himself to his crisis of belief. And this is where the story becomes a beautiful story. Jesus and Christians, think about this. As looking through the lens of Paul, Jesus and Christians were a threat to his whole existence. Everything that he poured his life into, 
Everything that he believed, everything that he wanted to see come by way of Jehovah God would come by way of some kind of Jewish revival in which every, they would turn to God that would usher in the Messiah. And of course, when Christianity comes along and Jesus comes along and he doesn't fit the description he, should, he thought he should fit, that's when he turned against it. And he, that was a threat to him. We see in verse 3, as Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I don't know about you, but don't you love those moments in scriptures where it's like, oh my goodness. Don't, don't you love it, especially when it comes to what God is saying? And Jesus is basically saying, I'm the one you're persecuting. It's you. He took it personally, what was happening to the, the Christians. And so then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then he makes this statement. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's an interesting statement. But literally what this means is that Paul was working against God. Paul, you're working against me. Now, again, who is Jesus? He's from Jehovah God, right? That's how we know him. He's from the covenant God. Jesus is the embodiment of what God desires to see through the people. He is the true Messiah. And Paul has totally missed it. And he's basically encountering him when he says, you kick against the ghost. Paul, you're working against the very God that you love and you serve. You're working against his purposes. So verse 6 so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, I want you to think about what's happening here. Verse 6, here's what I see. I see God knocking the strut out of Paul. Don't you agree? Paul's become a little too big for his britches. You think about it. He's the one going out. He's the one that wants to murder those and, and take them captive back to Jerusalem. It's him. It's his desires. But then... He comes humbly, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. What was Paul's life before? He would tell people what to do. Now he's being told what to do. So what do we see here? Notice in this text, look on your outline, Paul's desperate questions. He comes, and this is where a crisis of belief takes us many times. To a point of desperation. How many of you have noticed that? Many times a, 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 a crisis of belief takes us to a moment of desperation. And here's the two questions that come. Lord, who are you? Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, I don't know about you. Those are great questions, aren't they? Do you realize he'll spend the rest of his life seeking the answers to those questions? Do you realize that he will encounter the Lord at this moment, but will begin to live for him from that point on? Do you realize that his whole perspective, as we're going to see in just a little while, it's totally shifted. And now he's acknowledging the Messiah that comes from Jehovah God. And then that statement, Lord, what do you want me to do? These questions show us that he's in a crisis of belief. And the answers will bring the necessary adjustments and obedience to his life. And as I said before, he'll spend the rest of his life seeking the answers to these questions. Secondly, we see Jesus' revealing answers. 
And we see in verse 5, he, he is, is out there. He, he's basically saying, here's the answer. I'm Jesus. <laughs> Again, who's he encountering? The very person that goes against everything that he believed up to that point. Think about that. And then it says this. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Like we said before, Jesus took it personally. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. There's been times where I've been there. You obviously were working against me, but guess what? I was kind of working against you too. I was wanting to steer you in a different way. And it came to that point in which I showed up there. I'm showing up now. And he's basically saying, I'm revealing myself to you. And then what does he say? He says, arise and go. So Paul, as I said before, went from giving orders to receiving orders. And it is a picture of submission and obedience. And those two words lead to adjustments. They lead to adjustments. So what are Paul's adjustments? Now, most of us would say that Paul's crisis of belief is very dramatic. How many of you think it's pretty dramatic? Yeah, if you saw this in the motion picture world, you would say, man, that's a pretty powerful story you got going on there. But keep in mind that our crisis of belief experiences come about in different ways. They do. Think about how they come to you. And most of the time, I, I have to say from personal experience, they're pretty dramatic. There's some things that need tweaking in my life. There's some things that need shifting. There's, a, there's something that needs to happen. And hopefully when we go into God's word, what we find are those things that bring us to a crisis of belief, but also shows us the truth in which we're operating that causes the adjustments and the obedience that God desires to follow. And you see, his story is really no different than our own story. Not just when it comes to conversion, but also when it comes to just us living life. And so what do we find here? Paul's crisis of belief created, look here, the adjustments, his new reputation. He has a new reputation. Now, what was his reputation before? He sought to go after Christians. He, he wanted them judged. Uh, in some cases, he wanted them dead. In other cases, he wanted to bring them back to prison and, and, and put them into bondage. So look at Acts chapter 9, verse 7. And the men who journeyed with him, Saul, stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, when his, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said what? Here I am, Lord. He, he, he's already there. He's waiting obediently for a word from God. And verse 11, so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for he, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hand on him so that he might receive sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Would you say Ananias is going through his own crisis of belief right now? Obviously, he's going through it. And, he, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, 
Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias, I know it's hard for you to believe, but he's my chosen vessel. He's the one I'm going to use. And so Ananias had to quickly go from a crisis of the belief to adjustments about probably what he thought about Paul, to obedience to arise and go and do exactly what God had called him to do. Now, notice that Paul, this is interesting about Paul. This shows you how radical uh, this, what this crisis of belief did to him. He went from inflicting to be inf inflicted or inflect, inflicted, yeah, inflicted, in, in, inflicted, yeah. anyway, inflicted. Anyway, he's going to suffer because of Jesus, Okay. <laughs> All right, so keep in mind, it is the Lord prompting or guiding the adjustments in Paul's life. I mean, have you caught that yet? Not only did the crisis of belief come and God orchestrated it, the adjustments, he's told what the adjustments are, and now it's up to Paul to carry out the obedience that is necessary to accomplish the will and ways of God. And that's what we're seeing here. Next, we see another adjustment. He has a new family. He has a new family. Paul's new family realized was, uh, was realized because someone had courage and his name was Ananias. Now, someone has rightly said this. Courage is not the absence of fear, but commitment to the call in the presence of fear. Now, think about that. Courage doesn't dispel fear. Fear can still be there, but the commitment to overcome. And by the way, sometimes that is the obedience that we have to follow. And that's exactly what Ananias did. Look at verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Now, I want you to skip down to verse 19. We'll come back to those other verses later. So he, Saul, had received food and he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples of Damascus. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a man that they heard was coming after him. He was coming to arrest them. He was coming to put them in bondage. He was coming to do something. They had to have already heard about Stephen. Wouldn't you think the first martyr of, 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 of Christianity, don't you think the word would have gotten out? And who was standing there observing this? And, and, and who was the high man in command at that, point, at that point? It was Saul himself. Can you imagine what they're dealing with? Can you imagine seeing someone who, who, you, who sought you harm or, or worse, someone who has killed or harmed someone who's special to you? Think about it. Many of the disciples who poured their life into him were probably either afraid of him or angry with him. I think so many times we lose this in the story. We pretty much know they were afraid of it. But you, could you imagine the bitterness and resentment they had to overcome to be able to minister to him? I mean, he, 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 was, he was harming them. He was a threat to them. And that's what we're seeing. But despite it all, Paul was being welcomed into his new family. Thirdly, we see another adjustment. His new feeling. His new feeling, not F-E-E-L, but feeling like here on the screen. Look at verse 17. And Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me 
that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, all this began, the whole idea of the Holy Spirit began with Jesus prophesying it was going to happen in, in that great prayer in John. Then it was realized in Acts chapter 2, right? It was realized. And now Paul is getting in on it. That's pretty impressive when you think about it. That you may receive your sight and be filled. Now, this new feeling, listen to this, replaces Paul's hatred for the church with a love for the church. His aggressive spirit is going to give way to peace. His abrasive personality is replaced with gentleness towards others. And it is replaced, his pride is replaced with humility. The feeling, this feeling also took his background and natural strengths and refined them and gifted those strengths with powerful abilities to serve the kingdom of God. Think about that. Those things that were strengths that were working against them, those same strengths are going to be used to work for the kingdom. That's amazing when you think about it. But that's how radical the adjustments are when it comes when God speaks into our lives. And by the way, only God can do this to a person's heart, if you really think about it. Next, we see Paul's obedience. So we're going from the crisis of belief, we're going to the adjustments. But for him to become what he needs to become, it requires obedience. Look at verse 18. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. Now, let me say this. Was there obviously some form of physical blindness going on here? Yeah, but there's also spiritual blindness in Paul, wasn't it? He totally missed Jesus. He totally missed it all. He totally missed what Jesus was about. He totally missed what Jehovah God was about through Jesus. Totally missed it. And all of a sudden, things are becoming clear and clearer to him. Many have said this, and I agree with them. Apart from Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, Paul's conversion at that time was probably the greatest event in all of Christianity. When you really think about it. You think about what he was about. He was the perfect evangelist for the first century. He had, he, he had a background in Jewish, Greek, and Roman cultures. He knew the Old Testament as well as anyone. It appears that he could write and speak fluent Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic languages. He studied under the most prized scholar in the first century, Gamaliel. He had great passion for those things that he believed in. And these things will be used to spread the gospel throughout the world. The same one who called Paul, listen to this, here's what's amazing about it. The same one who called Paul calls us today. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? The same one, the same path to, to obedience, the same thing that happened in his life is something that can happen in our life. I don't know about you, but that blows my mind that the very thing he used in Paul's life could be used in our lives as it comes to this crisis of, a, a crisis of belief, into the adjustments, into the obedience. So we see his new perspective. Secondly, we see his new obedience. In Acts chapter 9, verse 18, the latter part of verse 18, and he, Paul, or Saul, arose and was baptized. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a big deal. Now, what is Baptism. It's a public acknowledgement of faith in Jesus Christ. It's the identification of Jesus in the death, burial, and resurrection. 
Can you imagine what's really going on here? There's something powerful happening here. It was now made public, his decision to follow Jesus. He is now part of the family of God, listen, in a public manner. Now, how well do you think that's going to go over? Not well. Not well. I mean, based on what we think we read, and Josephus doesn't dispute this. He was a historian in the first century. Uh, despite what we read here, Saul, Paul, was the major threat to Christianity. The, the historians who wrote in that day would not deny that. It was his zeal, his ambition. And all of a sudden, the world hears that every bit of that's changed. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing sometimes how we'll see some celebrity who's out there and, and, and all of a sudden they change towards the light of God out of their darkness? Doesn't that kind of make us like, amen, the Spirit of God is really working if it's taking one of those people and turning them. You, you know what I'm saying? And he's doing that with Paul. The very one who was the greatest threat against Christianity in that region was right there. Next, we see his new message. Look at verse 20. Immediately, this is so powerful. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Some of your translation says, and immediately, he preached Jesus. His life is now all about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Again, only God could do that. The NIV says it this way. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Next, we see his new testimony. Look at verse 21. Then all who heard were amazed. Now, how many of you would have been pretty cool to hear him speak soon after his conversion? And they're hearing his testimony. And what are they? They're amazed. Some of your translations literally says they were shocked. They were shocked to see such a great testimony, a great conversion. And, and, the, and the, here's what they said. Is this not he who, who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? Is, is he the one who used to have this testimony? Is he the one that you had this message about him? Now, first of all, could there be a little distrust in this statement? Oh, he's playing us. Yeah, we better be careful. But no, it was a real deal, wasn't it? It was the real deal. Paul had a testimony of knowing Jesus. The most zealous defender of Judaism became the most zealous evangelism for Christianity. Next, his new passion. Look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus. When it says he increased all the more in his strength, some, some ways of looking at this is he, his influence began to be, to be spread. His influence started spreading. And it confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is what? The Christ, the Messiah, the one we've been looking for by way of the testimony and message of the Apostle Paul. We find Paul's passion here, no doubt what he stands for now. But then, and this always happens, we see his new enemy. In verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. They were ready to wipe him out. 
They were ready to get rid of this testimony. They wanted to get rid of this message. They saw what this could do to what they were about, the threat. So when we come to Christ and live for him and are not ashamed of him, you know what we're going to have? We're going to have enemies. The people he once represented sought to do him harm. And the people he came to cause harm protected him. Wow. For Paul, everything changed in his life. And this is a great picture of how a crisis of belief can create adjustments in our life for greater obedience. So, where does that leave us? Well, experiencing God. There are seven points to what we're talking about. God is always at work around you. How many of you are convinced of that now? He's always at work. He will always be at work. And secondly, God pursues a continuing love relationship with, with you that is real and personal, preparing and equipping you. Thirdly, God invites you to become involved with him in his work. That's the call. Fourthly, God speaks through the Holy Spirit, his word, prayer, and circumstances to reveal his purposes and his ways. Number five, God, God's invitation many times leads us or you to a crisis of belief that takes faith and action to proceed. Number six, you must make major adjustments in your life to join him in what he's doing. And then number seven, this is where we are today. This is what you'll be studying this week. You come to know God by experience as you obey him and he accomplishes his work through you. It's all about obedience. It's all about obedience. So here's the application. What is your next step of obedience as you follow the heart of God and his purposes for you? And there's two more statements I want to take out of the, out of the book itself. When you really think about it, obedience is your moment of truth. You can have the crisis of belief. You can make some adjustments. But where, what comes next? It comes to the obedience. The moment of truth where when my faith takes action. And then next, God will never give you an assignment he will not enable you to complete. He'll never give you something he's not going to equip you for. It's always in place. Some of you are living testimony of what that looks like. Some of you are sitting here today and you're going to say, you know something? I've been through the crisis of belief. I'm telling you, the adjustments that, that came soon after were amazing and it was hard and it was difficult and it took me tremendous courage to get there. But boy, that obedience led to fruit in my life that I never could have imagined. I never could imagine. And I look back over it now and I'm thinking, wow, God, God. That's where he wants to lead you in this process. And so when you think about experiencing God, and I think about it from 25 years ago when it became a spiritual marker in my life. My prayer back in the summer when we started praying about doing this together as a church was that it would become a spiritual marker for many people in our church. That as a result of going through the study, we, our church would never be the same again because God showed up in the midst of it. God wants to do a work in your life. But I'm here to tell you, based on my journey, there's been times where fear of failure jumped in there. Fear just got in there. Doubt got in there. And there's been times where I think I've, to I've totally missed it. That there would have been a blessing. There would have been something great that could have happened if I would have just been obedient to the call he placed in my life. 
I want to invite you at this time. Would you bow your heads with me? I don't know where you are this morning. There may be someone here this morning that maybe they know they're in a crisis of belief. Maybe they don't know where to go from here. Father, I pray that you'll drive them to, to your word, that you'll drive them to prayer, that, Lord, you would show them something that maybe they've never considered before, that as we saw in Paul, there would be a new perspective that would come about, that there would be a new task that you placed on them, that there's something about their testimony that you want to tweak in such a way that others will tune in to see what you're doing in and through their life. Father, I pray for that one that's here. Maybe they've never take, taken the first step of faith. Maybe they've never trusted you as their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that before they leave here today, they'll talk to myself or another pastor about what this journey of faith actually looks like. But Father, I do pray for us. We've already been through the crisis of belief when it comes to our conversion. But here we sit today facing another. I pray you give us courage. I pray you give us the security to know who we are in you, that you are continuing to do a great work. But Father, I pray most of all, we would never get over what Paul, those two questions, Lord, who are you? And Lord, what do you want me to do? Help us to live our lives based on those discoveries. We thank you for what you've done here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, are you glad you came this morning? Pretty cool this morning, wasn't it? Let me, um, let me give you one very important thing. If you haven't voted yet, you need to vote. You need to vote. Please vote, okay? Uh, it's been said that evangelicals, those who call themselves evangelical, have the lowest turnout of any group. That is so sad. The government gives us the ability to speak into the process, and we can do that with a vote. And so I pray that you will pray about how to go about that. And I've given you some, uh, some help here. If you look in your, uh, in your handout, you'll see a, a voter guide that we have. We, we used to print them out and hand them for you. But all you need to do is go to ivoterguide.com, and it'll help you to see where candidates stand on certain subjects that matter to the heart of God, that matter to the heart of God. Thank you for being here this morning. You're dismissed.